together to the letter of Paul to the Corinthians, his first letter. In the Pew Bible, it's page 1210. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and then a few verses from chapter 3. The Apostle Paul writes about similar things and themes to James. He writes about wisdom, the wisdom of this world compared to the wisdom that comes from God. He also writes about what causes divisions in the church, and that's something that James is also concerned about. So we'll begin reading at verse 10 of chapter 1. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one may say that you were baptized in my name. I did baptize also the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God, for the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. We turn over to chapter 3, and we'll just read, actually we read the whole chapter. 3 verse 1, But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. And even now you are not yet ready, for you are still of the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not merely being human? What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, as the Lord assigned to each, I, I planted Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, 
and each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers, you are God's field, God's building. According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation, and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy, and you are that temple. Let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks that he is wise in this age, let him become a fool, that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is folly with God. For it is written, he catches the wise in, his, in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, that they are futile. So let no one boast in men, for all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future, all are yours and you are Christ's and Christ is God's. So far the reading of God's Word. Well, let's sing together in preparation full to create and develop and grow relationships of peace. Those are the questions James wants us to think about in our text. If we stand back for a moment to survey the letter of James so far, we start to see that a big concern for James is peace in the church, peace among those uh, to whom he's writing, the, the people, the churches in the dispersion scattered abroad. You'll recall in chapter 1, verse 20, that he exhorted us to be slow to anger, and verse 22, to be doers of God's commandments. Then in chapter 2, he highlighted the great summarizing commandment to love our neighbor as ourselves. And in that chapter, he singled out the commandments not to murder and not to commit adultery. Well, it's not hard to see that all of those things have to do with peaceful relations between neighbors, especially church neighbors. And then James went on in chapter 2 to teach us the difference between a false faith and a true faith. True faith actually loves it shows itself in loving acts of obedience. And one of the acts that James singles out is to provide food and clothing for a brother or sister in need. Peace. And as we saw last time in the first part of chapter 3, James urges us all to control our tongues because our words can cause so much damage to our neighbor. 
He says in verse 9, With our tongue we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. So, while there certainly are other teachings and other themes in James's letter, a big one that kind of grows slowly and comes to a crescendo in chapters 3 and 4 is this idea of actively loving our neighbor, especially our brother and sister in Christ, to do so in both word and deed. That's going to continue in chapter 4, where James will write about not quarreling with each other, not being judgmental with each other. And here at the end of chapter 3, James addresses the idea of neighbor love from the point of view of wisdom. It's not that he's forgotten the power of the tongue, but here he goes, you could say, below the surface to, to the source of the words that roll off our tongues, the source of our actions toward our neighbor, that being wisdom. Everyone likes to think they are wise. No one will self-identify as a fool, right? And yet the truth is, not everything that's called wisdom is in fact real wisdom. And in order to be genuine peacemakers in the church and in the family and in the community, we have to tap into that true wisdom, that, that wisdom that comes from above. And so I may proclaim to you this word of the Lord, in true wisdom, make peace by living in peace. In true wisdom, make peace by living in peace we'll see two things, false wisdom and its results, and then true wisdom and its results. So, after speaking about the tongue for quite some time in chapter 3, James now brings up the matter of wisdom, and he does it by asking a question, who is wise and understanding among you? It's a rhetorical question of sorts, and it he seems to be hooking back into the reference to teachers in verse 1 of chapter 3, where he said, not many of you should become teachers. Well, teachers in the church, and especially, they were, they were to be wise. They were to be recognized and known as wise and understanding. So, when he says, who is wise and understanding, that's, that seems to be a fairly strong connection to teachers. And apparently there were more than a few people in the churches who wanted to be or who thought themselves to be teachers or, or leaders of the flock. We know from Paul's letters to various churches, including the letter to the Corinthians that we read, that he often had to address men who had raised themselves up as some kind of instructors or influencers and who were claiming to be wise. That was especially in the Corinthians case. So, James has teachers on the brain, but we can't limit this to teachers either. Not only teachers are to be wise and understanding. After all, every child of God is called to be wise, and every Christian, did you know, is able to be wise. For how do we get wisdom? 
James already told us in chapter 1, verse 5, you simply have to ask God for it. And then he says, and he gives to all without reproach. He gives. Ask for wisdom, you'll get it. James is building on what he knew from the Scriptures, what we would call the Old Testament. Proverbs, for example, tells us that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and every child of God fears the Lord, or should. Psalm 119 tells us that studying the Word of God and God's commandments causes grow in wisdom. And now James reminds us that we need to ask God to open our hearts so that we can understand His Word and gain that wisdom from above. Well, every Christian can do those things, right? And the Lord Jesus taught in the same way in His sermon at the end, everyone who hears these words of mine, Jesus, and does them, sounds a lot like James, or James sounds a lot like Jesus, he, hear, and do, that person will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. Everyone can do this, says the Lord Jesus. Boys and girls, did you know that you too can be wise? Not just your, your dad and mom and, and your grandparents, but also you. All you have to do is love and respect God, pray for the Lord to make you wise, study the Scriptures, and obey God's commandments. That is wisdom. That's how it comes. And you'll remember what we talked about previously, that wisdom is always two things. It's both knowing God's will from the Scriptures and putting it into practice. It's about living according to the Bible. That's James' point in the second part of verse 13. By his good conduct, let him, the wise person, show his works in the meekness of wisdom. Let the wise person show his works in the meekness of wisdom. James is underlining the need for good conduct, just like Jesus did. And it's in the conduct or deeds that true wisdom is discerned from false wisdom. Just like James earlier taught us to understand the difference between true faith and false faith, so now he's teaching us to discern between true wisdom and false wisdom, the fake kind. The contrast starts in verse 14. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. That would be a reference to God's Word. Don't be false to God's Word. You want me to wait? Okay. The divine or the demonic? James describes this demonic or false wisdom first by what lives in our hearts, starting with bitter jealousy. Jealousy was something Paul also had to call out among the uh, Corinthian believers. Jealousy had 
created strife in that congregation and was at the root of their divisions. When you are jealous, you are upset that someone else has something you want. It's natural to our sinful hearts to, to want something that somebody else has. I mean, we, we see this among the kids very easily when a child sees a toy or a gift being given to another sibling, they can be upset about that. They can be mad about that. They can say, I want that. that I want to have that. It's for me. Now, when we get to be adults, we're not quite so open like that or, or crass, but it's also true that we don't outgrow that jealousy naturally. I think as adults, we just learn to hide it better. Inside, it's very easy to still anger, harbor about someone who has something that you think should be yours. And then James says the kind of jealousy, this kind of jealousy is bitter. That describes a heart that, that, that fulminates, that smolders with acid and anger and resentment that you haven't got your way in some matter. And then added to this bitter jealousy, says James, is selfish ambition in your hearts. Selfish ambition, that simply means to want something for yourself without consideration for anybody else, how it might affect your neighbor. You want what you want, and you're going to get what you're going to get, and whoever it hurts doesn't matter. Do you see, brothers and sisters, how that kind of wisdom would lead to the polar opposite of peace in your family, at work, at school, in church? If you let bitter jealousy and selfishness live in your heart, if you let it have a place there, how will you feel about the person you are jealous of? You're not going to like them too much. And eventually, you're going to grow into an outright hatred Think of how Cain, son of Adam, felt about his brother Abel when he saw that God gave approval to Abel's offering, but not to his own. Or think of how King Ahab felt about Naboth, who owned the vineyard that, Naboth, that Ahab was jealous of. Bitter jealousy in each case became dark envy, and that soon became cold-blooded murder. Do you see how these very common feelings, jealousy, it's very frequent among us in our hearts. Selfishness, how these feelings are so far removed from God that they are actually sourced in the devil. We can sometimes excuse these feelings. We can think they're kind of minor or they're just so common and frequent. We just let them live in our hearts. We allow them breathing space in our minds because we don't think they're all that dangerous or all that bad. But brothers and sisters, the Holy Spirit says, selfishness and jealousy come straight from Satan. James mentions Satan or synonyms for Satan several times in this letter. So, here in our text, this is no slip of the pen. He, he, he knows well of what he writes. Later in chapter 5, verse 7, he commands us to resist the devil, and the devil will flee from you. 
But earlier in chapter 3, verse 6, James said that the tongue is a fire that is set on fire itself by hell. That's a roundabout way of saying your tongue is set on fire by Satan. And earlier in 2, verse 19, James mentioned that demons have a certain kind of faith. And they shudder because they, they know, they believe that God exists. James is now saying that demons and the devil have a certain kind of wisdom as well. But it's a godless wisdom. It's a false wisdom which only serves to hurt, which only serves to break down. So brothers and sisters, banish every ounce of jealousy. Banish, banish every ounce of selfishness from your heart. It comes from Satan. Think of what your selfishness and jealousy do to your relationship with your, your spouse, your child, your parent, or your sibling, or your co-worker. Think of what these things do, or somebody in the church. James says that having these things in our heart leads to something. They lead to disorder and every vile practice. When somebody has something you want, you are filled with, or I should say, I should ask, are you filled with friendly feelings or unfriendly? When a person has been recognized and honored for something and you haven't been, do you rejoice for that person or do you feel sorry for yourself and get a little bit ticked off at that person? Husbands. Are you selflessly serving your wives without thought of getting something in return? Wives, are you selflessly serving your husbands without thinking of how that service will benefit you? Or do bitterness and anger take root when all you see is what the other hasn't done for you? What about in other relationships more broadly? Are you jealous of somebody in the workplace or in the church or at school? Has someone been given something you thought ought to have been given to you and it burns you up inside? If so, how long before those sinful feelings in your heart stoked up by demons, remember, how long before it will cause you to lash out with angry words or hostile actions? How long before you stop loving your neighbor as yourself? How long before you stop serving the other altogether and the relationships you've got become frigid and frozen or altogether dysfunctional and broken? When we let those things live in us, selfishness, envy, jealousy, are we really being peacemakers? Those are the destructive results of the false wisdom that Satan promotes. A matrix of, of unpeace is what results. But when you and I live by true wisdom, beloved, we can truly be peacemakers. We can do that as we live in peace that comes from the heart. For true peacemaking comes from a true wisdom, which God gives, 
a true wisdom which then fills our heart. It starts in the heart. Making peace is never just about the outer behavior, about some kind of level of quietness and non-fighting. Let's unpack that a little bit because it may not be well understood among us. Someone might say, well, look, if I, if I just never say a bad word or do a bad thing to that family member or to another neighbor, wouldn't that be making peace? What if I just promised myself I'm, I'm never going to disagree or engage in an argument with anybody? Or what if I keep my opinions and my feelings to myself and never got into an argument, never got into a fight? Wouldn't I be a peacemaker? Well, not really. Certainly, being determined not to pick a fight is better than picking a fight or arguing all the time, but it doesn't change what's going on inside, does it? Your heart. Those sinful, satanic feelings of selfishness and jealousy toward your neighbor, they are still there, and so you don't actually have peace inside your own heart. And more than that, true peace, true peace is a lot more than just not fighting. The peace the Bible talks about, the peace that Jesus bought for us with His death on the cross certainly includes not fighting with your neighbor, but much more than that, on the positive side, it includes a beautiful relationship of harmony with your neighbor of love, of cooperation, of joy together, especially as fellow Christians. There should be a togetherness in joyful cooperation. That is the shalom that God speaks about and, and has given to us by the death of Jesus. He gives us a lot more than a ticket out of hell. He throws open the doors to heaven. And He takes us by the hand and walks us into His dwelling place, to His home. And He says, welcome, my daughter. Welcome, my son. My house is your house. Live with me in fellowship and joy. Let us eat together and walk together and laugh together. That is the peace. That is the shalom for which our Savior died. That's the shalom we already have now in principle and in beginning, and that's the peace we are called to make with our neighbor. From spouse to child to parent to sibling in the, ch in the church to co-worker to fellow students at school, wherever we meet our neighbor. And all of that starts, says James, verse 13, with the meekness of of wisdom. True wisdom, we recall, is good conduct. So, biblical actions that imitate Christ, obeying the commandments, and then it's got to be done in the meekness of wisdom. Well, what is that exactly? Not a word we use a lot, meekness. Well, meekness is an attitude an attitude of the heart, and we know, we read that from Matthew 5, Jesus said, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. But how do you know if you are meek? How do you become meek? People sometimes think meekness is being shy or timid, 
an introvert. Some think of it negatively as, as being a pushover or a doormat, like you would never stand up for anything but just lay down and take whatever was being dished out. But that is not the Bible's idea of meekness. Moses, for example, is called one of the meekest persons, meekest men in his day. But that same Moses had the courage, did he not, to face Pharaoh, to walk through the Red Sea with walls of water on either side. He had the courage and the bravery and the strength of the Lord to confront rebellion at the golden calf and to, to rally the Levites and dish out punishment to the rest of the Israelites. And he had the, the strength to resist the public revolt of Korah, Dathan, and Abiram. Moses was definitely no wallflower, and he was no doormat. Jesus also was meek. He said of himself, Matthew 11, I am meek and lowly in heart. And yet this same Jesus could stand up to the Pharisees and the Sadducees when they came with their tricks and their traps. And the same Jesus showed how strong and courageous he was by, toward the end of his life, willingly standing beneath the whip of Pilate, though he was innocent of any wrongdoing, and allowing himself to be nailed to a cross for your sins and mine. That, that takes incredible strength. We can't even fathom what kind of strength of character and strength of determination. So whatever you do, brothers and sisters, never mistake meekness for weakness. Those are not the same. Well, what is it then, meekness? It's this. It's to have a humble heart before God. It's to know who you are before the face of the Lord. It's, it's to know your place before God and submit to God's will no matter the cost. So it's the very opposite of arrogance, you see, the very opposite of selfishness. Meekness has no selfish ambition. Meekness is not living for oneself. It's living for the Lord. It'll never be a source of jealousy either, meekness. The devil is the opposite. The devil is arrogant, prideful. He doesn't have a meek bone in his body, but Jesus is meek through and through, and that's who we want to imitate, right? If you want to be a disciple of Jesus, if you want to live for Jesus and walk with Jesus, then you need to repent of your pride. You'll get rid of your arrogance. You will renounce all selfish ambition. Jesus is wisdom from God. Come to us in the flesh. So if Jesus is humble and lowly and submissive to His Father, so will we be. And if Jesus has a steely and unbreakable determination to obey His Father, even through tremendous pain and suffering, even unto death, then so will we. Father, make us meek so we can act wisely as our Savior. Wisdom is that beautiful combination of knowing and doing God's will. And with a, a meek spirit, 
we can then, in the fear of the Lord, call upon His name, pray, and study God's Word, then we'll be able to act wisely in the way that James describes in verse 17. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. In that list, there's, there's attitude and there's action. There's understanding and there's conduct. And won't practicing all these things, won't they make for peace in our relationships? James says that wisdom is first of all pure. Psalm 12 says that God's Word is pure, using the same adjective there. That means it's unmixed. It's got no sinful motives in it. The wisdom that comes down from God through His Word and Spirit, that is an unmixed wisdom. It doesn't have a sinful motive in it. So when it comes from God, that's how it comes. Now, of course, we've got sin in our heart, so there's always going to be a taint, but that wisdom is the guiding force of what we do. In other words, we are truly wise when we want to do the right thing for the right reason, for our neighbor's good, and for the glory of God. That kind of wisdom is the very opposite of letting selfishness dictate or jealousy guide our actions. This wisdom, James goes on, is peaceable, gentle, and open to reason. That's the, the disposition of those who are wise. Peaceable. That means peace-loving. Shalom-loving. It means we want to live in harmony with all of our neighbors. You want your neighbor and yourself to flourish together in a relationship. Does that describe the longing of your heart? Neutrality is not good enough. Staying away from trouble is only half of what we're called to do. Wanting and working for shalom, that's what God wants. That's what God has done for us in Christ. That's what we should desire others to enjoy as well. Wisdom is also gentle, says James. That refers to the manner in which we interact and respond to our neighbors, doubly so to our critics. That's usually where we get into trouble, right? When somebody comes to us with, with a criticism or with a sharp word, do we respond with a sharp word back? Or do we have a gentle tongue and def deflect in a, in a positive way that outpouring of wrath? When asked or addressed about something touchy, is it our instinct to rise up in our defense and tear a strip off that person who dared bring it up? Well, remember Jesus again. Full of wisdom, He was and is. When it was His personal reputation that was being shredded by the, by the leaders of the Jews, He just let God defend Him. He didn't stand up for Himself. Many false accusations were thrown at him in Pilate's courtroom, but Jesus answered not a single one. 
And earlier in his ministry, when he did answer his opponents, when he interacted with them, he spoke clearly. He spoke forthrightly. He could rebuke them, yes. But he never did it with venom or scorn. He never did it with a mean spirit. And to those who don't know better, who didn't know better, he spoke gently and patiently. Think of how graciously Jesus answered the Samaritan woman at the well. Just gently leading her to see the truth about herself and about himself. That's gentleness. Wisdom is also open to reason, says our text. That means you're ready to and willing to listen. And you're willing to change your mind when better arguments are presented. In other words, it's not your way or the highway, but your meekness and humility keep you open-minded about a wisdom from the Scriptures that perhaps you haven't yet seen. You see, a wise person always remembers his or her own sinful nature and the imperfection of ourselves and the possibility of being wrong, the possibility of being just off-kilter in what we've been thinking or saying or doing, a possibility of maybe I haven't seen the whole picture and maybe this brother or sister can enlighten me. And so a wise person is ready to listen, ready to be convinced of a different point of view. If we have that disposition, that certainly will make for peace, won't it? James goes on to say that the wisdom God gives is full of mercy and good fruits. Mercy. The same mercy that James said earlier triumphs over judgment. The same mercy which we've been shown in Christ, we now generously and eagerly show to others. Good fruits, what's that? That's the acts of obedience to God's commandments, all of which you remember are based in love for God and for neighbor. And when wisdom acts in loving obedience, it never shows partiality. James wrote about that in chapter 2. It never treats a poor man differently from a rich or a person of status different from a person who doesn't have that status. And nor does wisdom ever put on a front, a pretense. It's always genuine, says James. It's from the heart. It's sincere. Brothers and sisters, think. Think of what God can accomplish through us if you and I prayed to Him for this wisdom from above, and if you and I dedicated ourselves to making peace by living this way. How would your marriage be? How would your marriage be if you, you humbled yourself before God and prayed to be meek like Jesus? How would your relationship with your kids be if you asked your Father above to make your, your heart peace-loving, your attitude gentle, your mindset open to reason? What blessing would accrue in your workplace or in the congregation if, if you and I prayed daily to be full of mercy, full of good deeds, impartial and sincere with everybody? There's a harvest waiting, says James. A harvest of all kinds of good things if only we would throw ourselves into our calling as peacemakers and do that in the wisdom God provides. James brings that out of verse 18. 
and a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. A harvest of righteousness. What's that? Well, righteousness is, is pretty, pretty simple, really. It's all those things that we are called to do that are right in God's eyes. In other words, righteousness is obedience to God's commandments. Righteousness is, is good works in this case. And James is saying there's going to be a ton of good works. There's going to be a ton of love going around coming out of our efforts to make peace. Isn't that a delightful promise? A great goal? So, brothers and sisters, be what you are, a true child of God who loves peace. Peace lovers become peacemakers. And when true shalom is made in the family, in the church, in the workplace, at school, everyone will be doing good things, righteous things all over the place. Righteousness will abound in an abundant harvest to the glory of God. Who doesn't want that? Amen.